Good morning. It's been a while since I've been able to say good morning. I'm used to preaching at night, so uh, it's good to be back. If you don't know me, my name is Brian. I'm a pastor here at Hope Community Church, and we uh, just this past September launched Hope Community uh, Lower Town in downtown St. Paul. And so I know that I've seen several uh, Lower Town uh, people because I'm sure they're Vikings fans, and our service is at 6 p.m., and so therefore... Uh, they have the freedom to come down here uh, with me, but uh, thankfully I am a Packer fan, and so um, uh, it's been interesting. So I, I was uh, really, I, I, I'm, Packers aren't in it, right? I, I understand that, right? They're not playing, and, and I really am excited for Vikings fans. I really am. Uh, I hope that they actually do it. I was telling Steve and Cord this morning that I want them to be able to know what it's like, you know, to win one. You know, it's it's a great feeling. It really is, and so it'd be. It'd be fun to share that uh, a little bit, and, and um, I've got a lot of friends and family that are, are Vikings fans, and just, you know, it'd be, it'd be kind of cool. Uh, but uh, anyways, that's, that's that, so I understand. Uh, if you haven't been there, uh, don't worry about it, because come Super Bowl week, we're going to end up doing a lot of stuff over there in Lower Town, so you'll get a chance. Don't go tonight, or you're going to hear the same message uh, again, so don't worry about that. And uh, I do want to say uh, thank you to the uh, worship teams. Uh, they really do a lot of hard work, and uh, I want to publicly acknowledge that. This band here that plays, they'll obviously come back up and, and play for the 11 o'clock service, but next door at Hope East, or West, excuse me, uh, welcome, by the way, thank you for being here, uh, that that band will actually pack up all their gear, and they're going to drive on over to St. Paul and play at 6 p.m. downtown over there. And so uh, they don't get paid, uh, it's all volunteer work, and so I know I'm blessed by their ministry, as I'm sure you are as well. And so thankful for them and, and their hard work and what, they, and what they do. So as Pastor uh, Tim mentioned, this is a standalone thing. We're in between, finished up the Advent uh, season and then uh, kind of a, a one-time deal. And so I was uh, told, just preach on whatever you want, which is always difficult because the Bible's kind of a big book. And so just, hey, whatever you want to preach about. All right, I guess I'll preach about Jesus, I guess. Uh, um, and, and so that's what I'm going to do this morning. Um, and so I don't know if, about you, but the older I get, I'm able to look back at previous events and things that happened in my life that seemed very inconsequential, just seemed like a very small little thing, not a big deal. But then as I look back at that, I go, man, if that, if that little thing didn't happen, even if it was a bad thing, well, I don't know if I would have reacted the way that I did here now today with my son or with my wife or, or whatever, right? That little, little seemingly uh, small thing that, that made a huge impact and and a kind of a funny story that I, I've shared with my small group, at least, is um, there was one day when I was in uh, junior high or ninth grade, eight or ninth grade, I don't remember exactly when. Um, that's all kind of a blur, as I'm sure it is for you, too. And I, I was in this class, and I won't name names, but I had a really hard-lined uh, English teacher, right? Uh, which is pr probably every English teacher. But they, they just were very, very strict with the rules. And, and I knew that, well, we had to take a test. And that test was required that it was supposed to be in pencil. I knew that. I should have brought a pencil. I didn't bring a pencil. All right, so I raise my hand. I say, hey, I, I don't have a pencil. Can I borrow one? She says, absolutely not. You know you're supposed to bring a pencil, and you need to provide your own pencil. No one let them borrow a pencil. you got to be kidding me, right? So I say, okay, well, then I need to go to my locker, right? And now I'm, now I'm freaking out because I don't think I have a pencil in my locker. And so she says, fine. So I, I sprint down the hall, and I get to my locker and open it up frantically going through my locker, can't find a pencil, and wouldn't you know it, the senior bully, Eddie Washidas, decides to run by, and he just goes, hey, Silver! And then what does he do? Throws a pencil at me. Hits me in the chest with a pencil. <laughs> you gotta be kidding, right? 
Eddie, right? I'm quoting Joseph here now, right? You meant that for evil. You meant to do harm to me. God meant that for good, right? This is, this is an answer to prayer that I didn't even pray, right? This is amazing, right? So I go back in and take my test, and you could say maybe that was a God thing. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was just Eddie being Eddie. I don't know, but that happened. And so a seemingly small thing that made a big difference at that time, I was able to take my English test, probably got a D plus uh, or something, but I passed, and I'm here. Um, and these things happen. I have one of my favorite movies, maybe you're not familiar with it, it's not too popular, but it's called Stranger Than Fiction, and it's with Will Ferrell. Uh, not a very popular movie, but one of my all-time favorite movies, close second behind You've Got Mail. Um, I'm kind of sappy like that. This is not a comedy, though, okay? It, it is not. If you've never seen it, uh, Will Ferrell, I mean, I like just gross snot sob every time I watch this movie. Love this movie. Uh, it's very serious, um, and anyway, so... Will Ferrell's on this, and he is an accountant, and I'm going to make some jokes here, but I'm, I'm married to an accountant, married to a CPA, and that's who he is. My, my wife isn't quite as bad as this guy, but he portrays somebody who is very particular uh, about certain things, and it's got to be in a certain order, and so the narrator, as he's getting ready in the morning, talks about how he brushes his teeth, you know, 28 times exactly, up and down, and 28 times side to side, every single tooth, right? He's very particular, and he only ties a single Windsor knot, as opposed to a double Windsor uh, tie knot, as to save 8.6 seconds in his uh, daily routine, and, and he does everything based on his watch. He's, he's timing everything on his watch. Well, the scene that changes everything is an opening scene where he's standing at the bus stop, he's waiting for the bus, um, and the narrator says this phrase, little did he know, okay, sorry, back up, I ruined it, ruined the punchline, his watch dies, okay, so he's standing at the bus stop, watch dies, and then he says, oh, it's weird, does anyone have the time? And they tell him the time, and he sets his watch again, and then the narrator says, little did he know that this seemingly uh, innocuous act would ultimately lead to his death. Okay, the thing is, though, he actually hears this narrator voice, okay? So he hears this voice, and he says, who said that? Like, what was that about? But no one's like, I didn't hear anything. So he's the only one hearing this narrator's voice who says by him, his watch dying and getting maybe the wrong time ends up, will ultimately lead to his death. And as clearly he starts losing his mind in the rest of the movie as he can hear this narrator narrating his life and he can't figure it out. This seemingly innocuous act. And that's what I want to talk about. There's just something that happens in scripture that is just this tiny, seemingly insignificant thing that ends up being one of the most important things in all of scripture. And so this may be new and I don't want to get super heady, but I want to talk about Melchizedek. All right? And you're like, Melchizedek who? All right? That's okay because it just seems like this small little thing. But it's amazing what we get and the truth that is unpacked about this individual Melchizedek. And so it's titled here, Someone Greater Than Melchizedek is Here. I chose that title because it's probably back in 2010 or 11, I forget, but I was at a, at a preaching conference in Chicago, and uh, D.A. Carson, uh, a teacher, professor, he ended up preaching a sermon entitled, Getting Excited About Melchizedek. I thought that was, I didn't want to take that title because I thought, man, if you don't walk out of here excited about Melchizedek, I've failed miserably. So uh, that's part of it. But that kind of, I got excited about Melchizedek, and then I was in seminary, and so I wrote this huge paper on Melchizedek, and so I am excited about Melchizedek, and I hope that that will rub off on you as well. And in Mark chapter 12, Jesus is talking to some religious leaders, and he says to them, uh, remember Jonah, Remember Jonah, how all of Nineveh repented under his teaching? Well, guess what? Someone greater than Jonah is here. 
And he says, remember the wisdom of Solomon when the queen of Sheba, the queen from the south, went listen to the wisdom of Solomon? Well, someone greater than Solomon is here, and so that's why this phrase has been chosen. Someone greater than Melchizedek is here. He's one of the most significant people and characters in Scripture behind Jesus and what he uh, means to the rest of Scripture uh, that we see developed. So a glimpse into the devotional life of King David. I want to start with Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is by far the most quoted uh, Old Testament passage that's quoted in the New Testament, Psalm 110. And so I want to read this out loud, the whole psalm, and then we're going to talk about this a little bit more. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will, expend, will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn, and you uh, and not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole world. And he will drink from a brook along the way so he, was, uh, so he will lift his head high. That's it. That's the past. That's, that's a passage that's quoted the most often in the New Testament. And I want to explain why and what is important. And what is incredibly important about this uh, book is who wrote it. Because it actually really matters. Other books that we have, uh, it doesn't really matter if so-and-so wrote it or who didn't write it, especially in the Psalms. We've got numerous Psalms. We don't even know who wrote it. But this one, we have to know who wrote it, and that is David. It has to be King David who wrote this because it changes everything. Okay, so I want to go back and I want to look at that first phrase. The Lord says to my Lord. Little tip, and, and maybe you already know this, but anytime you're reading, especially in the Old Testament, some translations, not everyone, but we use the NIV and, and it does that here, that when the Lord is in all caps like that, that first Lord, it means Yahweh. It means the creator of the universe. Right? That's who we're talking about here, God the Father. That when Yahweh says to my Lord. So now we gotta figure out who is the Lord of the author of this. So if the author of Psalm 110 is uh, someone in the court, or which happens uh, in the Psalms, that it could be a different author, that when they write this, are they saying, are they referring to the king, right? So Yahweh says to my king, because when, when it's a little L Lord, that could be anything. That could be like, um, who's a Lord? Lord Grantham from Downton Abbey, right? Uh, it could be any, any lord, a master or a king or someone like that would be lord. And most often in the New Testament, even when the disciples refer to Jesus as lord, it's this idea of master. Okay, so Yahweh says to my lord. Well, the question is, and if, if this is King David, which I believe it is and scholars do as well, that if this is King David who's writing this, who is the lord of the king? The king doesn't have a lord. King David is one of the most powerful men in the world at this time. Who is his master? Well, that's interesting. Because his master, what he's talking about here, he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the Messiah who's going to come. That's, that's, King's David, that's King David's Lord. So Yahweh says to my Lord, and even Jesus mentions this in Mark chapter 12, 35 to 37. 
Jesus is teaching in the temple courts, and he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? All right? Because David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord. All right? So here's Jesus saying, David wrote this. How can he have a superior if he's the king? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And a large crowd listened to him with delight. So we see here that there is Davidic authorship of this song. That he's talking about the Messiah who's going to come. In the order of Melchizedek. This is amazing, right? He says this in verse 4. The Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. You, so who's the you referring to? The Lord. The you is referring to the Messiah. You, Messiah, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Well, who, who is this Melchizedek guy? Let's go there and let's look at the seemingly innocuous act that happens back in Genesis chapter 14. I'm not going to do a ton of reading here. I'm just going to kind of paraphrase what's going on here in the passage. But in Genesis chapter 4, there's a huge battle going on. Uh, it even says five kings versus four kings. They've got all their armies. and They, they go down. They have this big battle. And Abram, who will later be changed to Abraham, this is before God makes his covenant with Abraham, he goes to him, or sorry, Abram's son or nephew, Lot, is kidnapped. So Abram's nephew, Lot, is kidnapped in this battle. And so then we get to Genesis chapter 14, 13 through 24. And this is the story, and this is where we get to, uh, where we get to uh, Melchizedek. So Genesis chapter 14 says this. A man who had escaped this battle came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew, that is, that Lot was kidnapped. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre and Amorite, a brother of Eshcol near Aner, and when, in whom all allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought them back uh, with his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating uh, Kedolamer, sure, I guess, a lot of, a lot of words here, uh, and the kings allied with him, and the kingdom, king of Sodom came out to meet them in the valley of Shiva, that is, the king's valley, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of the sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Anner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them have their share. Did you catch it? The seemingly innocuous act? No, because I skipped it. You didn't even notice, right? There's a couple verses in here. I just did. Just they don't even seem like they fit here. Let's read them. So again, going back to 17, Abraham returns, goes to the, 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 the valley of Shiva. That is the king's valley, and this is what it says. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the Most High God. 
And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And then it continues with the rest of the story. These three seemingly small verses that happened. And in here, Melchizedek, king of Salem, that's all we get. That's it. Genesis chapter 14. That's all we get about this character, Melchizedek. But yet, King David says about the Messiah, you are a priest in the order of Melchizedek, and you will sit at the right hand of, of God. How does he get there? What is happening? What is going on about Melchizedek? And so who is this Melchizedek individual? When I was, uh, this is probably about eight or nine years ago, I'm young buck here. Um, I was teaching at a school in Normal, Illinois uh, called Calvary Baptist Academy or Calvary Christian Academy. I don't remember uh, one of those. And Christian, C C C A, Calvary Christian Academy, that's what it was. And... Um, and I taught junior high Bible. So for two hours of my day, I would go into this Christian school that was part of our church, and I would teach uh, seventh grade Bible and eighth grade Bible. And, uh, and so I, I taught at this school, and, and it was a difficult class to teach because the school had what they would call open enrollment, meaning you don't have to be a Christian to go to this school, okay, which is a pretty good position to take. But clearly it's a Christian school, Calvary Christian School. And we teach Bible classes. But it was difficult because I had kids who had grown up in the church that were in there. And I also had kids, literally on my first day of class, had a girl come up to me and say, what is a Bible? Like, I don't even know, what is this about? So it was a difficult class to teach because uh, I didn't want to send them home with homework because I didn't want them to dread Bible class as much as they dreaded English class, right? So I was like, I was a good teacher. I didn't know homework ever, right? We're just going to make this easy peasy and teach you the Bible. And the only homework that I gave them was a, uh, semester-long two-page paper, and um, that's all they had, right? It was just, I mean, it's junior high. They could have done more, but I just didn't want to put a lot of stress on them. Well, there was one girl, not this girl uh, in this picture here, but there was one girl who came up to me after I had given this assignment, and she said, um, I don't think I should have to do this assignment. I said, well, why is that? She said, well, I already know everything about everyone in the Bible, and I think it would be a waste of my time. Oh, Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I said, well, how about you share your wealth of knowledge with the rest of us, and how about you write a 15-page paper on Melchizedek? All right. So I told her. And she said, fine. And I said, all right. <laughs> it's all you. So she left. She comes back the next day or the next weekend, whenever it was, and, and she comes up to me after class, and she says, um, can I write a two-page page on Mary? <laughs> I said, yeah, you can do that. You can do that. All right. So who is this Melchizedek guy, all right? Because she obviously didn't want to touch this, and this is all we hear about him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem. And so the first thing that we read and what we understand about Melchizedek in this little short passage here is that he's a king, that he is a king of Salem, which is interesting. And if you've connected the dots and just thought about it, this is what later on will become Jerusalem. Right? And so he is the king of Jerusalem. And it's not clear here, and if my study was correct, that the Sumerian word for city is Salem. And so it was just kind of a generic term, but this is clarified later on. And so one author says this, Melchizedek is connected with the city of Salem, traditionally identified as Jerusalem. Psalm 76.3 explicitly connects Salem with Jerusalem, that is Zion. 
This indicates that a Sumerian name was given to Jerusalem long before David appeared, possibly when Jerusalem was an outlying trading post of the Sumerians. So he is a king, but he's also a priest. He is a priest king. So we see this here. Kizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. It's not necessarily symbolic. It doesn't have anything to do with communion or anything like that, just food and nourishment for the troops. And he says, but he was a priest of the Most High God. Now that's interesting, all right? Because when we look back at Genesis chapter 14, we see this character, Melchizedek, as a king and priest, which later on, when the book of Leviticus is written, it strictly forbids any cross-pollination of kings doing anything priestly or any priest doing anything kingly. And yet the first king of Israel, King Saul, ends up doing that and uh, loses his job, okay? So I want to read this story real quick. Saul remained at Gilgal. He's ready to go into war, go into battle. And when all the troops with him were quaking with fear, he waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. Okay, so Samuel is the high priest. He's supposed to come and perform a sacrifice before the king leads his armies into battle. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he, Saul, said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offering. And Saul offered up the burnt offering, and just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? <laughs> What'd you do? Right? Asked Samuel. And Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time, and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought now the Philistines would come down against me at Gilgal, so I have not sought the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God that the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have, listen, listen, listen what he's saying, you wouldn't have done that. He would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. We wouldn't even be talking about King David. We wouldn't be talking about Melchizedek. We'd be talking about King Saul. He would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has not sought out a man, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And that ends up being King David and his throne that will be established forever, the covenant that God makes with David. He doesn't do it with Saul because Saul broke the rules. It's very clear in the book of Leviticus. You cannot do this, and yet he does it, and he loses his throne. But yet we have, in Genesis chapter 14, a king who is a priest. And David says the Messiah will be in his priestly line. Interesting. The superiority of Melchizedek over Levi, who is Levi. Right, Levi is going to end up being the great-grandson of Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, Jacob's got 12 sons, 12 tribes of Israel, and one of them are dedicated to only uh, having priests. They would perform all the priestly duties, and that was the tribe of Levi. And so thousands of years before Levi even comes around, or sorry, hundreds of years before Levi comes around, we've got Melchizedek. And so the book of Hebrews gives us a little bit more insight into Melchizedek. And I don't have time this morning to go through all of Hebrews and what it says about him, but he says this in chapter 7, 9 through 10. 
One might even say that Levi, the great-grandson, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, okay? So, in the Israel, in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus, right, in the book of Leviticus, they had to give a tenth, they had to give a tithe uh, to the Levites, because they didn't, they didn't make money. Their only living came off of the other tribes of Israel, giving a tenth of what they earned and gained, and that was the law. So one might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid paid the tenth through Abraham. Okay, so the Levites actually paid a tithe to Melchizedek because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestors. Some translations say in the loins. It's uh, a funny word. Um, right, they hadn't been born yet. And so by that, this lineage that carries across all of this, the father of the nation of Israel ends up giving a tithe to this random individual, but it's hundreds of years later before the law was even written. And so the superiority of Melchizedek over Levi, it's superior because it's universal. And this, part, this point right here, if you leave with nothing else, I hope that this is encouraging to you. Because this is Genesis chapter 14. It's very close to the beginning. Right? In the beginning, God created a couple of the chapters. You got Melchizedek that shows up. This is before Israel is a nation. This is before God makes his covenant with his people. And you see, it's universal, it's superior to the Levites because the Levites only performed sacrifices for Israel, for the Jews. That if you wanted to be part of the camp, you had to become Jewish. Not so with Melchizedek. That before Jesus even came to the world, in Genesis chapter 14, what we see here is that God wants to redeem all peoples, all of them, from all nations. And we see that finished in Revelation chapter 22 when it says that the, the tree of life, right, and the leaves of that tree are for the healing of all nations. And he cares about all people through all time. It's universal. It's superior. It's also royal. We already looked at this. And the fact that he's also a king. This is a, a kingly priest who has position and power and authority. And then we see that it is peaceful. F.F. Bruce says this, King of peace. That's what uh, Melchizedek means in its alliteration or transliteration. King of peace, F.F. F. Bruce explains. There is a fitness in this uh, calcation of righteousness and peace, both in the natural order and preeminently in our author's explanation of Melchizedek in term of the gospel, where peace with God is based upon the righteousness of God. That is peaceful, right? Because in, in the Levites, they're sacrificing animals. There has to be a, a blood sacrifice, but that doesn't happen with Melchizedek. It is a peaceful transition because he's talking about the righteousness of God, and it's also eternal. It's eternal. We see this in Psalm 110, where he says, you are a priest forever. This is not going to change. The Messiah is going to be a priest from Melchizedek because it's superior priest line than Levi was. So, so what? Why does this matter at all to us today? Does it even matter to us? Well, it's in our Bible, and I think it is important to us. And so I want to look at why Melchizedek and, and who he represents, and then in Psalm 110 represents, that when we get to Hebrews, and it connects that all to Jesus. And so I want to look at the superiority of Christ over Melchizedek. So he's an important figure, but he is a priest in the order of that, but he is far superior than anybody else. And here's why. It's a finished work. We see this in 
Hebrews chapter 10. He's talking about uh, the Levites now. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, when Jesus had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. And by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. I love this image that he is seated at the right hand of God. He's seated in a position of power and authority. And he's seated on his throne. And we looked at it, these Levites and, and what they did. And they got up and they performed all these rituals and sacrifices. and things. Their, their work never stopped. Jesus says, it is finished. And he sits down at the right hand of God. And even talks about uh, one day he's going to have a footstool. His enemies are going to be his footstool. Right? That, that image, you get, we've all been sitting reclined and you got our feet up. He's relaxed. <laughs> he's not worried. He's not pacing around. He's not doing it. He's sitting down. And you think about that little thing or the, the big thing in your life that's life-changing, it's a difficult time that you're going through. Jesus says, I got this. And I love the paraphrase in the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones when she's talking about Israel or paraphrasing Isaiah. And she says, all the bad things will become untrue. I love that. And Jesus is seated saying, someday all this stuff will be untrue. I'm going to make this all right again. It is a better work. We see this in Hebrews chapter 7. Again, he says, because of this oath because of the, the, of the fact that he's going to be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, Jesus has become the guarantor of our better covenant. This is a new covenant that I no longer have to perform these sacrifices. I no longer have to do those things. I can directly go to God in prayer because of Jesus. It's better. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. That's far better. I'm sure that you, when you woke up this morning, you didn't think, boy, I really hope the preacher's like really prayed up today because I got to get my sins forgiven. Because right, if he screws up, man, we're all doomed. I don't think you had that, maybe had that thought, but I don't think you did. Why? Because we live in a new covenant. We live under the blood of Jesus. And he's always there, always lives. He is a mediator between God and mankind. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, and I want to talk about this briefly. Going back, this is a picture of, of uh, the tabernacle that they would have wandered with for 40 years in the wilderness, the, the Israelites, and later on built a temple that was very similar, just much larger than this. And they would carry this around. And so you can see kind of on the top side there, you've got the table for the showbread. And the bottom, you've got the menorah. And then you've got the uh, uh, table of incense, the sacrifice of incense there. In front of that curtain, that's kind of cut away. But that curtain was this seven-inch thick giant curtain that would have been hung and only one time a year. So they carried this thing around for 40 years. And a high priest only went in that room 40 times. And he would go in there where the Ark of the Covenant was 
And the Shekinah glory, the the glory of God, would would hover over the Ark of the Covenant and he would perform one sacrifice in the Day of Atonement to forgive the sins of Israel. And it was called the Holy of Holies because it was a terrifying thing to be literally in the presence and glory of God. And this priest would go in there, and I guarantee on that day, people were praying for their priest. Man, I hope, hope he's got this. Please don't die in there, okay? We need you, right? And it says here in Hebrews that we get to, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, how do we do that? By my, my own merit, by my good works, by being a good Christian and showing up on church, or even on a Vikings day when it's negative 18? No. You do it by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain, right, that big veil that was torn, that is his body. The first thing that tears in that day when Jesus dies, he says it is finished, and he gives up the ghost, and what happens? The veil of the temple was torn in two. That's that covering that goes in between the most holy place and the holy of holies. We can now boldly go in there because of Jesus. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Again, going back, he's making a reference back to the book of Leviticus, that when when someone was clean, let's say they had leprosy or some skin disease, and then they would get healed or just their body would get better, they would have to go to the priest, and the priest would take hyssop, and he he would say, be clean, be clean, be clean. And they would get to run around, and finally, being brought back into the camp, we're cleansed and cleaned. And he's saying that's what, that's what happened to each and every one of us in the new covenant under Jesus as priest, that we have, we have sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. So in closing, I want to talk about these gospel applications. And I want you to hear this. And I know we didn't spend a whole lot of time on this, but I want you to hear, do you, do you believe that God's ultimate plan of redemption from the very beginning was, Jesus, was, was to give Jesus to all people? I didn't spell that or do something right there. It was to give Jesus to all people. That was the plan. Before, before Israel was even a nation, we've got Melchizedek, and that's why... Jesus is superior. Before there was a covenant with Abraham, before his great-grandson Levi was even a figment of Abram's imagination, this happened. And Romans 8, 14 through 17 says this, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. You are a child of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so you no longer live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba. We cry, Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. We get to go into the presence. We get to go into that most holy place in our spirit and our prayers when we approach the throne of God and approach the throne of grace that I can boldly go to that throne of grace because the blood of Jesus That God the Father does not look at me with wrath and disdain because he doesn't even see that. My sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. He sees the righteousness of Christ. 
We are God's children now. If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs to God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Jesus is superior. So because of that, let's worship Jesus because he is superior and worthy of worship. And so now as we sing and lift up our voices, let's go to our heavenly Father with our needs Whatever things that we're struggling with, maybe big things, but maybe someday you're going to look back and say, yeah, maybe that wasn't a very big thing. It seemed like a very small thing. God's in control, and he's seated on his throne. So let's pray and lift our hearts and minds and go to that most holy place and pray to God the Father and praise him for the superiority of Jesus Christ in reference to the priest that we have in him. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you that Thousands and thousands of years ago, you purposed before the foundation of the world to send your son to this earth to redeem all people. Not just some, not just of a certain tribe, not just of a certain ethnicity, but all people. And we see that. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that, that now he's seated next to you in position and power and authority, and he's interceding for us on our behalf that we can boldly come to the throne of grace because of who he is and how he fulfills the role of prophet, priest, and king fully, ultimately. So God, we thank you for that. Receive our worship now as a sweet-smelling savor to you as we thank you for who you have, who you, what you've done and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.